we are still doing the Luke parables. So where we are is Yeshua on prayer. And what we'll do tonight is the friend at midnight and the unjust judge, maybe, depending on how the discussion and so forth goes. Last week we did the Lord's Prayer. That one turned into an hour all by itself. Wasn't expecting that to happen, but it did. And what that is, is an outline. What it does is explains, if you will, the things that are appropriate to talk to God about. Not that there is anything that is not appropriate to talk to God about, but this is sort of covers everything. What is good to ask for and so forth. The big thing that we talked about for quite a while last time is the difference between the modern church understanding of that prayer and the Jewish understanding of that prayer. Specifically, where it says, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the things that much of the Sunday church has lost is the idea of the sanctity of God's name. It has become common and an expletive, whereas with Jews, they don't even say the name. They say Hashem instead of yod heh The other one is the idea of your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And the point we made there, I made there, is much of the Sunday church is focused on getting to heaven. And that's sort of an all-consuming thing with them. Get as many souls saved as you can and so forth. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with that, but what it does is it shifts your focus from what you've got to do here on earth to the world to come. And what it does is it destroys your ability to affect the culture. So the church has basically been sidelined in our culture. It's not especially effective anymore. And the Jewish idea is not getting everybody to heaven. They figure that's going to take care of itself. But bringing heaven down to earth. And the idea of, as I'm fond of saying, you broke it, you fix it. So the idea here is to do our part to fix the creation. So those are some things we spent a lot of time talking about last time. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight, as I said, is the friend at midnight and the woman and the unjust judge, if we get that far. I was reading this book, Parables by Brad Young, and I really don't know who he is. I've got his book, read it. It's a good book. I like it. In some ways, he argues with Kenneth Bailey. He argues with him especially about the parable of the persistent friend, and we'll talk about that later. I'm reviewing this today, and one of the things that was very interesting is... The purpose of the parables is, I don't want to say to humanize God, that's not really the way to say it, but in Judaism and especially Judaism of the first century, God was almost unapproachable. The only way you approached him was with set formulaic things and in the context of the temple and so forth very different from the Christian idea of Yeshua, who is your personal Lord and Savior. One of the things that the parables do 
is they make God more accessible. He, in a sense, humanizes God because what he's going to say is, I have this example of somebody behaving poorly, which is the guy that doesn't open the door or the unjust judge. Nobody can imagine a human being acting like that. How much less can you imagine God acting like that? So the idea is to bring God to a relatable place so that people are comfortable talking to him. As say, humanizing God is the wrong way to say that because God isn't human, but we're made in his image. So the idea is make him somebody that you can relate to and you can talk to and you can be intimate with in your prayers. And that's one of the things that parables do. And by the way, I'm reading this from New King Jimmy. As I said last time when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, there are different Greek manuscripts that have different things included in them. I chose New King James because it's got them all. And it has notes saying some manuscripts don't include this, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm using New King James because it's got them all and most people are familiar with all of them and certainly they're worth talking about. So we've just finished the Lord's Prayer and now we're down to Luke 11:5. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give it to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, First off, it's important to understand that this is not a city environment. This is a village environment, small town. The guy that needs the bread doesn't knock on the door because a bang, bang, bang on the door in the middle of the night is alarming. Instead, he calls out and his friend would recognize his voice. The other thing about this is when he starts calling out to his friend, everybody around also wakens up and hears this. So it is in fact the case that everybody in the neighborhood or within voice shot has heard this conversation. And if the friend persists in not giving him any bread, that conversation is going to be the subject of gossip all the next day. And everybody knows that. So that's thing one. As I say, it's a small village, it's not a big city, and everybody knows everybody else. So the idea of this conversation taking place at midnight, when everything is quiet and the lights are all turned out, as soon as the conversation starts, people will wake up and hear what's going on. And again, everybody listening to that story recognizes that and understand what's going on. The second thing is in rural villages like this, not everybody has an oven. And in this part of the world, fuel is expensive. 
This is not a place like Oregon where you have massive forests with lots of dead branches and stuff that people can burn. In fact, read years ago, one of the things in India that they started doing is making sludge digesters. They're small. I mean, like the size of a bathtub or maybe a little bigger. And what they do is they put animal manure and human manure in them, and the decomposing manure generates methane gas. And they pipe that methane into the house, and they use it for cooking and heating and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things they said about it is it has reduced the burden on women tremendously. Because what women had to do was go out and find sticks that they could use for fuel to cook the meals. And so the idea of having this little sludge digester out by the barn, which makes methane and pumps methane gas into the house, was a tremendous labor-saving device for women. Similarly here, in a rural village like that, you would have a communal oven. And on baking day, they would heat the thing up and you would bring your dough and you would bake your bread along with everybody else. So this friend who comes and calls out at midnight knows who has been doing baking recently and how much. In other words, he's not just sort of randomly calling out to people. Everybody in the village knows who was baking that day or who was baking the day before and who was likely to have fresh loaves of bread available. So that's, again, a factor of village life that you wouldn't find in a big city. The other thing is hospitality. When a traveler comes into a town, especially a town where he knows somebody, he expects to be welcomed in. And again, you can take the biblical stories of a bride for Isaac. When the camels head north uh, with all the stuff to get Isaac a bride, and he pulls up at the local well, sees Rebecca, she draws water for him, and he says to her, do you have place in your house for us to stay? And the answer is yes, we have a place for you, and we have fodder for your camels, and all that kind of stuff. So inns did exist, you know, the holiday inn kind of thing. They did exist, but they're not ubiquitous. So most people, when they travel, would stay with somebody they knew. Hospitality requires that you set before a guest a fresh loaf of bread. It is not acceptable to rummage around in the pantry and get the leftovers from dinner the night before. You have got to set in front of him a fresh loaf of bread and you've got to treat him like an honored guest. Now, the other thing about hospitality is the etiquette here is the host treats the guest as well as he possibly can. The flip side of that is the guest is obligated to be grateful for whatever he gets. And there's a phrase or something is, even if it's only bread and salt, you compliment the host, you thank him for his generous hospitality, and on and on and on. And of course, the idea is to foster good relationships.
The other part of this is when a guest comes into the village, the village's reputation depends on how the guest is treated. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. And the idea there is when you have a traveler that comes through, if the village treats him well and is very hospitable, the reputation of the village will increase as opposed to if they don't, the reputation of the village will be damaged. So all of this comes into this parable. In other words, the friend has an obligation from about half a dozen different directions. From direction number one, he has an obligation because he's a friend. If I were to go to Mike's house and ask him for some bread or something like that, Mike has some sort of an obligation because we're friends. He also has an obligation because the whole village is hearing this interchange. And if he answers like this, he will be the subject of gossip for the rest of his life. And then third, he has an obligation because he's a member of the village and the village's honor is at stake. Coming back to verse five now. Which of you will have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, the expected answer to that is nobody would have a friend like that. So when Yeshua says, which of you would have such a friend, the mental answer that everybody has in his head is, no, <laughs> nobody's got a friend like that. Nobody can imagine a guy behaving that way. Now, the other thing is the excuse. My children are in bed with me. I cannot give and so forth. First off, the children are probably awake by now because the conversation has awakened them. Second, the children are probably sleeping on the floor as they would in a village, and the children will go back to sleep. It is not a big deal. So the excuse is transparently disingenuous. It's not an excuse that anybody listening to the parable would accept as a valid excuse. It's sort of like the wedding feast where you had the three guests, where one of them says, I just bought a piece of land and I need to go look at it. I've just bought some oxen. I need to go see how they work. I just got married and I got other things to do. Those are all completely transparent lies. And everybody listening to the parable knows that they are completely transparent lies. That's the purpose of the parable. In other words, he's setting up such a ridiculous case that everybody knows that it's a ridiculous case. Now, here's where Kenneth Bailey differs from Brad Young. In verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And the argument is over that word persistence. Bailey takes that word persistence and he says the root of that is shameless, as in chutzpah. Somebody is shameless. And what Bailey says is the reason this guy will get up is to avoid being shamed in the village. Young's take is, no, that's completely wrong. The grammar's wrong. 
everything about that is wrong. What it is, is because of the chutzpah of the requester, he will get what he needs. And Young's commentary says, given all of this setup that I've just done with background and culture and everything else, if the guy in the house with the bread were to behave that way, his friend would be red-faced with rage and would start banging on the door and start yelling and everything else because this guy has behaved in such a disreputable manner and has insulted him in front of the entire village. At that point, we got to fight. And what Young says is, this guy is going to get the bread. It is going to happen. And if he needs to kick the door down to do it, he's going to do that because he is not going to allow his friend to treat him that way in front of the whole village. So that's a disagreement between the two. Now, what's the upshot of the disagreement? It turns out it's fairly important. The question is, can you nag God into doing what you want him to do? I mean, that's the question. And Bailey says, no, you can't nag God into doing what you want to do. And of course, the upshot of what Young is saying is, yeah, you can. You understand the reason for the disagreement and why the disagreement is important. There's another set of commentators on this that apply this to eschatology, which is to say, if you whine enough, God will let you out of the tribulation. They'd see these two parables about prayer as being eschatological in nature. So there's three different opinions on what's going on here. I am sort of on Young's page because I just read him, whereas I read Bailey a while back. And when I read Bailey, his argument was really great, and I taught it that way the last time I taught it. Because the idea of being able to nag God into doing what you want him to do seems somehow, well, but there are a number of Jewish parables, rabbinic parables, that support that. And I will give you a couple of examples. And then we'll go to Moses. So the first one is the prince who pestered his father. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, so I am helped. Rabbi Simon told a parable. The king had a single pearl. His son came and asked him, Give it to me. The king answered, It doesn't belong to you. But the son pestered him until the king gave the pearl to his son. Thus Israel sang a song at the Red Sea to the Holy One, Blessed be he, the Lord is my strength and my song. They entreated him, to give them the Torah. Thereupon God answered them, it does not belong to you, but to those above. But because they pestered him, he gave them the Torah. As it is said, the Lord gives strength to his people. The other one is tenacious daughter. Rabbi Eliezer observed a fast, but no rain fell. Rabbi Akiva observed a fast, and rain fell. He, Rabbi Akiva, went in and said to them, I will tell you a parable. To what may the matter be compared? To a king who had two daughters. One was tenacious, the other was gracious. When the tenacious one wanted something and came before him, he said, give her what she wants so she will get out of here. But when the gracious one wanted something and came before him, he 
He lengthened his dealings with her because he enjoyed listening to her conversation. And this is by way of, you have one rabbi, they both prayed for rain. But when Akiva prayed, it came. When Eleazar prayed, it did not. So what Akiva is saying, it isn't because Eleazar is ineffective. It's because Eleazar is so much more gracious and God enjoys talking to him. Whereas he did it for me just to get me out of his face. That's the point of the story. But the point I'm making here is this idea of pestering someone is in the Jewish culture very consistent with this parable. And these rabbis that I'm talking about are all of that era. So the parable here would have been something that would have been in form and substance familiar to the people who were hearing it. The comment was at the beginning thing, I said that what this does is makes God closer to us and approachable, as opposed to the Jewish idea where God was somebody you approach through the priesthood and in the temple and so forth. The point of the parable, however, is nobody would have a friend like that. And we don't have a God like that. Even with this persistence, we don't have a God that needs that. What it's saying here is this guy is getting the bread because of his persistence. That's what it says. What I said at the beginning is God is approachable. Nobody can imagine a friend who would fail to get up and give him the bread when he asked. Similarly, God does not fail to give his children good things when they ask. Good comment. And in fact, that's a very common rationale for repeated prayer, which isn't to say it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a very common rationale. And the idea there is if you have sufficient focus that you keep talking about something in prayer over an extended period of time, that takes it out of the category of being a whim and into the category of something that's important to you. So yes, I understand that argument completely. The other argument, getting to Moses, it's sort of like the old joke. Prime Minister of Israel is talking to the President of the United States. I don't remember the subject. And the subject of prayer comes up and the President says something and Prime Minister of Israel says, yeah, but in Israel it's a local call. I don't remember the setup of the joke. All I remember is the punchline, so I apologize for that. But the idea is that a la Moses, Jews argue with God. Moses argued with God. Abraham argued with God. And so the idea of getting into a dialogue and not taking no for an answer and not doing the first thing that you get told to do and negotiating with God over things is a very Jewish thing, very Hebrew thing. Comment was, when you compare God to the jerk who won't give up the bread, one of the reasons that the guy will eventually give up the bread is because of his reputation in the village. That's certainly true. But in the same sense, God, when he deals with us, also has his reputation to consider. So when God says, all right, 
get out of my way, I'm going to destroy them all. Moses says, oh, that's not a really great idea because if you do that, everybody will say, you weren't able to do what you said you were going to do. That's one of the arguments Moses makes. Similarly, when Abraham is having the conversation about the destruction of Sodom, he says, shall not the judge of the whole world be just? Far be it from you to do something like this. So his reputation is very much in play. And I will riff off of that for just a second because what happens when you have a relationship with God and he answers prayer, healing, whatever it is, what you should then do is you should then testify about it. You should make it known that you have had the answer to prayer. You should make it known that you've been healed. You should make it known whatever because what you're doing then is you are enhancing God's reputation. In other words, if you are going to be in relationship with God, you need to be a good ambassador. So anyway, that's the persistent friend. And you can just do whatever you want to with that. You can think it's because of eschatology or you can think it's because of the reputation of the guy with the bread. Or you can think it's because of persistence of the guy who wants the bread. Those are all three fairly well-known interpretations of persistence. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. So... And this is by way of saying God wants you to talk to him. God wants you to be in communication with him. And you should go into communication with God expecting good things. Now, as we come down to verse 11, there's a modifier here. And that's where I want to camp out for a minute. And by the way, Depending on what version of the scripture you have, some of this will or will not be in there. So if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? That is not in all versions, but you'll have a note there saying some versions have that. So again, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? So obviously these are rhetorical questions meant to elicit the answer, no way. So there's no father that would behave like that to his own child. One commentary I have read on this is that the choice of the three things are based on shape. So a loaf of bread looks like a stone. Similarly, a snake or a serpent that slimy looks like a fish. Similarly, a scorpion, when it's got itself all balled up, looks a little bit like an egg. So the idea here is, in addition to the fact that you're giving the child something that's not good for him, you are also, in a sense, fooling the child, tricking him. And that's sort of the point of the whole thing. It's not just not giving him what he wants. And in the case of snakes and scorpions, it's actually giving him something dangerous. But as I say, the the point of the shape business is 
you're not only not giving him what he needs, you are in fact tricking him in the process. So it's sort of a double bad. You didn't give me what I need, and oh, by the way, you made a fool of me in the process. So it's, it's doubly bad. And of course, the answer to all of these is no way. Nobody can imagine being that way. So, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So notice now what's happened here. You've gone from bread to the bad father to the Holy Spirit. And what I take from that is I read that in the context of verse 9 and 10. Going back to 9 and 10. If I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. That can be naively taken as, gee, I need a new Rolls Royce. Gee, I need whatever. And scripture says all I have to do is ask and I'll get it. The Holy Spirit down here is the modifier to that. The way I read it is the Holy Spirit is the power source of God. Yeshua did all of his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, when the apostles got the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they started doing stuff. Things started happening around them. They healed people and so forth. Whereas we who are bound on the earth tend to think of earthly stuff when we ask. I need a new car. I need this. I need that. And we tend to think materially. What God is thinking is eternally. And what he does is he gives you the spirit. And when you have the spirit, all of the material stuff then becomes open to you. The Holy Spirit is your comforter. The Holy Spirit is your advocate. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside you and guides you. And so if you are living life according to the urging of the Holy Spirit, the things that you actually need will fall into place. It's like somebody saying, I need a new toaster, but he doesn't have power to his house. And so the first thing that happens is somebody hooks up the power, and he says, that's not a toaster, I asked for a toaster. Ah, but now that you have power to the house, all sorts of possibilities open up to you. You have instances where, for example, the Spirit came upon Saul, Spirit came upon the prophets. So they were not unfamiliar with the Holy Spirit. That wasn't the case. I know, for example, in the case of Eldad and Medad, in the camp when Moses called the 70 up, and God gave them the Holy Spirit, and Eldad and Medad were out in the camp, and they should have been part of the 70, but they got their chunk of the Spirit too. And as soon as they did, everybody says, whoa, what happened to Eldad and Medad? And so the idea of the Spirit coming upon people and giving them abilities. For example, when David asks, all right, should I attack now? And God says, no, wait till you hear marching in the trees. I believe he was listening to the Spirit. And we're talking about the character of God here. 
And the parable is intended to tell you what God's character is. And the rabbinic term for that is kal vehomer, which means heavy and light. So it starts off with light, which is you have this friend that's got the bread that isn't giving it up. Then how much more will God, who is not like that at all, give you what you need? It's a typical Hebrew-Jewish argument pattern where you set two things side by side and you say, all right, we know this is not the case. How much more then will God do this? And it's all about the character of God. And as several of you have said, as you get into a relationship with God, of course, your character changes. The things that the child is asking for in verses 11 through 13 are necessities. The child needs bread and fish and eggs to grow. So it's not as if the kid is suddenly asking for a pony. I don't know if that's intended as part of the parable, but it's certainly there. And the idea is you can't imagine a father who would behave that way. Then how much more will your heavenly father give the ultimate gift, which is the Holy Spirit, to those who ask. Comment was that in a friend at midnight, if you who are evil know how to go and get the bread that you need to serve someone else, how much more then will your Heavenly Father give you the Spirit so that you can go and serve others? I think that also works. I say there's, there's lots of stuff in here. So next week, God willing, we will get the woman and the unjust judge and the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that will round out three weeks talking about prayer from Yeshua's perspective. And then we will move on to the next part of the chiasm.